at this time, I'm going to encourage you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is out of um, just respect for God's Word as we go through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Stacy. Well, yeah, it's great to see you all. We got a, a full house this morning. It's so good to be worshiping God together with each of you, knowing that uh, as we as we gather, as we study His Word, as we sing His praises, as we uh, turn our discussion tables here in a little bit, everything that we want to do this morning has the stated goal of uh, filling our hearts with a greater understanding of God's love for us and equipping us to go love each other better throughout the week as we go from this place. And so, uh, one of the things that we've been trying to talk about lately as a church, like in our leadership meetings and partners classes and newcomers lunches, is this idea of what kind of culture do we have as a church? Uh, recently, the last few years, uh, a pastor from Tennessee by the name of Ray Ortland kind of opened my, ideas, uh, my eyes to this important concept that uh, a church can sometimes affirm things with its doctrine that it then contradicts with its culture. So like, we, we want to affirm that, that God loves us and that he uh, loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And because of that, we want to extend that love to everyone we meet. But often churches can be a place that is full of judgmentalism or pride or arrogance and some things that end up contradicting the very stated doctrine that it is that we're saying we want to be gathering around as Christians. And so this idea of can a church unsay with its culture what it has already said with its doctrine is an important concept for us to go through. And so the thing that's interesting, though, is when you talk about what kind of culture does a church have, the natural thing that comes up is, is a, a culture of a church is how do we behave when we interact with one another? Like what, what are the... Uh, types of actions that characterize our interactions with one another. And, and the thing that I've noticed uh, growing up in the church and visiting lots of different churches is oftentimes the churches that talk the most about how you behave can end up becoming the most unloving, legalistic places there are. 
right? It it can uh, cultivate a a judgmentalism and an arrogance that says, because we work so hard about behaving correctly, it leads us to look down our nose at people who are are not behaving the same way that we are, that we desire to. It can become uh, judgmental. Uh, The the phrase holier than thou, right, is is something that you don't want to associate with us as Christians, uh, or a goody two-shoes. Does anyone know where the phrase goody two-shoes came from? I had to actually look that up this week because I've never heard where that came from. So it actually goes back to the 17th century. And in the 17th century, uh, uh, a wife was called a good wife, and you would shorten that to goody, just like Mrs. can be shortened to MRS. And there's this 17th century fable about a woman who had no shoes, and then she was given a pair of shoes, and because she had two shoes, she looked down on with arrogance at everyone else who didn't have any shoes. And that's the etymology of goody two-shoes. You see, you learn something important at church. But the thing that I think is so important with that illustration is how often does that characterize what Christians act like? Right? Like, we, like we, we were sinners. We were dead in our sin. We knew that we needed a Savior, and that's why we came to Jesus in faith, asking him to save us from our sins. And then as soon as we get through the door, it's like we look down on everyone else who's not like us, who's not behaving as well as we are with judgmentalism and pride. And so what we want to talk about this morning is this idea of uh, what does it mean to live as a Christian? Like, like uh, the whole word holier than thou, um, interestingly enough, the Bible actually does care about holiness. Like how we behave when we treat one another, when we act with one another is an important thing. Like Peter cares a lot about how we behave. So how can we talk about what it means to behave as a Christian without cultivating a sense of pride or a goody two-shoes that's going to look down our noses at people who are not behaving the way that we are? This seems like a really complicated concept, but, but who would have guessed? First Peter has some wisdom for us that we can glean this morning. So we're going to turn there in a second. Let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll study God's word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and the fact that we can uh, come into this gymnasium and we can sit at tables and we can sing songs together and we can open our Bibles together and that throughout all of these things, there are chances for us to encounter you in a life-altering way. So I pray that over these next 30 minutes, uh, as we turn to discussion tables after that, as we uh, end our service with a time of worship, I pray that everything that we do here would cultivate a deeper love for you in our hearts, that we would be more in love with you when we leave than when we came. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are going through First Peter as a church right now. We're going to go verse by verse through the whole book. Um, so if you don't have a Bible on the table, the table Bibles, uh, the chapter we are going to be in is page 1014. If you have your own Bible, you can go ahead and flip there or click there or however it is that you end up in there. Uh, and so what we're at so far, this is our, our third passage we're studying from the book of First Peter. And what we've seen so far is Peter started off this letter by addressing it to the elect exiles in the Roman Empire. And, and that, that phrase, the elect exiles, is the important theme that's going to work its way through the entire book of First Peter. Because what Peter's doing by calling them elect exiles is he is reminding them who they are and he is reminding them where they are. So who they are is they are elect. They are chosen by God. They are loved by God. They were saved by God out of no effort or work on their own because God foreknew them, because he chose them and loved them. They have now been made new creations that they can walk in the freedom that comes from Christ. That's who they are is they are elect and chosen. Where they are, though, is they are living in exile. They they are not living in their home. Uh, Like the Old Testament nation of Israel that was exiled into Babylon, the people of God are making a residence among neighbors and in a culture that is actually not their eternal destiny. They were made for a future home with God for eternity in heaven, and that because they are not there yet, they are living in exile. They are not fully able to assimilate to the culture that they're around. They are elect exiles. And so what we've done so far is we've gotten through the first 12 verses 
verses. And like I mentioned last week, in those 12 verses, there is not a single command yet. There's not a single verse that says, this is what you have to do. What Peter is doing is what happens a lot in the Bible. He's setting the table by saying, this is what God has done. Before we ever get to what we need to do, we have to focus on what it is that God has done. And that's what those first 12 verses are, the part that Stacy read a little bit ago. It's this amazing picture of how God has saved us. Uh, he has chosen us. He has loved us. He has made us holy. He has sanctified us. He has done all of these things, and it has nothing to do with our own efforts. It's because God, in his love for us, decided to send his son, Jesus, who willingly went to the cross, who took our sin upon himself. And when he died and rose again, that has changed the fundamental nature of our souls. And now if you come to Jesus in faith, if you repent of your sin, if you confess that you need him for your Savior, you're a completely new creation in Christ. All, right, that, that, that's the, all that has happened. And we had nothing to do with that. that. That is all entirely the work of God. That's such an important way to understand the gospel, is that it is God's saving work and our response in faith. It is not our work that makes that happen. There's a, there's a really important passage in Romans chapter 2 uh, that where Paul says, uh, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I heard a pastor point out one time, it's not, if you switch that order, you get the gospel entirely wrong, right? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads God to be kind, okay? And in the same way what we're going to talk about this morning is it's our salvation leads to our obedience, okay? We, we don't receive any commands and then try to earn our salvation. It's because we're saved that then we respond in obedience. It's not our obedience that makes us saved. It's our salvation that leads us to obedience. So let's see in verse 13 how uh, Peter begins this passage. He says, therefore, and we want to stop right there. Right? We've read enough already. I want to talk about this a little bit. There's this famous little phrase that says, when you read the Bible and you see a therefore, you have to stop and ask, what is it therefore? And the reason that this therefore is here is Peter is saying, I don't want you to think of what I'm about to tell you as some new information. This is not a new thing I'm going to tell you. This is in response to everything that I've already told you. That's the point of what we're starting with this morning. Because God has saved you, therefore, listen to what I'm about to say. And so in this section we're going to do this morning, Peter is going to give us three different commands. But it's important to remember that these three commands all come after the description of how it was we were saved. It, it, they, commands cannot come before salvation. Obedience doesn't come before salvation. It's salvation that leads to our obedience. And that's just the nature of who God is, right? This is not a New Testament concept. If you go to the Old Testament, right, the most famous list of rules in the history of the world, right, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Thou Shalt Nots that people think of as like, these are the things I have to do. But even before uh, God gives the Ten Commandments, the first thing he says prior to the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. So even in the Old Testament, when God reveals his law, he's saying that obedience to God is a result of what God has already done for us. Okay, obedience follows salvation. Obedience does not come prior to salvation. So let's keep going and see what he says. Therefore, preparing, let's stop right there. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to go a little bit faster than that as we go. <laughs> Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we, we get to the first command that we see in this section. He's saying that we should set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so with this idea of setting your hope, there's three things we need to do here. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. So the first thing is to, to set our hope. That, that is something that is up to us. That this is a command that we walk in obedience by orienting our hope to the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Like, like it's, it feels like it's been every sermon that I've done the last uh, year or something. I've mentioned Lamentations 3 because that chapter of the Bible is just so incredible. But what he says in Lamentations 3 is, is um, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And what, and what Jeremiah is doing there is saying by intentionally bringing to mind the steadfast love of the Lord, that's what cultivates hope in my heart. Peter is saying the exact same thing here. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that you should set your hope. Call to mind, call to your conscience awareness the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And, and like we're going to say every week when we come to hope in First Peter, because First Peter is the book of hope, hope is not wishful thinking. Okay, it's not like a baseball fan like me during spring training that thinks maybe this year I hope the Rockies will be good, right? That is a futile hope that will never come to fruition. But like a biblical hope is saying, I am so confident for the future and what God is going to do, I have confidence today. Okay, it's an expectation for tomorrow that gives you strength for today. And what Peter does when he talks about hope throughout this whole book is he begins not just with today, he goes back to the past. And he says, because Jesus rose from the dead, that past event is secure, it's final, it already happened. Jesus has already won. He defeated sin and death. He walked out of the tomb under his own strength. Because that happened, today your hope for the future is oriented towards the grace that God's going to show you. Like he's situating us on this line of history that says Jesus' past resurrection and his future return is why today we can live in hope and we can have confidence. And he says that we orient our hope to the grace of that will be shown to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ or the second coming of Christ. So this idea of grace is what saves us. It's the, it's the undeserved kindness of God. It's nothing we have ever done to earn God's love. It's only his kindness towards us. That that grace is what is going to be realized in the future. And, and, and here's the reason that's important because everything else that you want to put your hope in today has nothing to do with grace. It's all going to be works-related. I, I, I hope I get in better shape next year, but that's going to take a ton of work, right? I hope I can save for retirement. That's going to take a ton of sacrifice. Everything else that we orient our hopes to require work on our part. But Peter is saying, no, as a follower of Christ, your hope is oriented entirely around this concept of the grace, the undeserved kindness that God has given you. And then he says to set your hope fully. Like, there's no such thing as a partial Christian. We cannot partially abide in Jesus. We cannot partially have our hope in him. We need to be fully and completely and 100% devoted to our hope being found in him. So if if that's what we're going to do, if the command is set your hope fully on the grace that will be shown to you in Jesus, the question then is how do we set our hope on Jesus? And he actually has already given us the two things that that, that help us do that. He says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Okay, and so your Bible probably has a footnote that says the prepare your minds for action, the the literal word for that is gird up the loins of your mind, which is a hilarious Old Testament image if you're not familiar with this phrase, gird up your loins. Well, basically what it is is in the ancient world, uh, men wore robes, which was basically just like a dress, and they found that it's kind of hard to run into battle wearing a dress. So what they would do instead is they would take their dress and wrap it around their legs and then tuck it in to their tunic. And that process was called girding up your loins. It's like if you've seen Lego Batman, you know, the Lego Batman movie where Robin rips off his pants so he's more agile and able to to do the, the work. If you haven't seen that, you're like, why is this guy talking about Robin taking his clothes off? But... It's the same concept. Robin is girding up his loins with that. And so anytime the Bible talks about that, what it's saying is be ready for God to work and make sure that you are situated in a place that you can respond in obedience to what God calls you to do. 
right? If you need to run into battle, you cannot have your robe uh, dangling about your feet. You have to have your, it ready to go so that you can run into battle like you're called to. And so Peter's saying that with our minds, with our attention, with our thoughts, we need to be ready to take action in response to what God has done. So we need to gird up the loins of our mind, and we do that by being sober-minded, Okay, so this idea of sobriety, it's not just talking about alcohol. It's talking about anything we do that would numb our spiritual awareness to what God is doing. So rather than having our spiritual awareness and our souls numbed and our focus deterred, we need to make sure that we are sober-minded, able to think clearly and focus on what it is that God is calling us to do. And so I I do think alcohol is a good example of that, right? So the way I've had this explained to me is that alcohol is a depressant which means that when you drink alcohol, it narrows your focus so that you can focus on only one thing. When the world feels overwhelming, people run to alcohol because it helps them manage the anxiety that they're feeling. Okay, what Peter's doing here is saying that that's what our souls do all the time. When we're not sober-minded, we want to narrow our focus so that life feels manageable. And what that does is it makes us not ready to respond in obedience to what God calls us to. Okay, so think about some things that numb our senses and narrow our gaze. Uh, uh, Some of the most anxious and angry people I know are those who are most addicted to news, right? By going to the news every morning and being so consumed with current events, their gaze is narrowed and they can't even focus on what God is doing around them. Or, Or in a town like Falcon that has so many youth, right? The idea of like youth sports has narrowed our gaze and we get so obsessed with my kid can't miss a practice or an event or a game and I have to make my life orient around that. That's narrowing our gaze. It's making us not sober-minded. We're being anxious and driven by those things. Or even like probably the most prevalent thing for all of us is this little motion you do with your thumb, right? When you have your phone open, like that is narrowing your gaze on your Instagram feed, your Facebook feed, your news feed, whatever it is. And that little thing, when you flick your thumb to the next thing on the screen, what you're doing is it's like your soul is becoming more unhealthy with each additional screen you're looking at. Okay, and what Peter is doing is saying those things are not, not, not sober-mindedness that's aware of what's going on. It has narrowed your gaze. And so what Peter is saying is that if we are oriented towards hope, if we have set our hope firmly on Jesus, our eyes are wide open. We are ready to see what God is doing around us and to respond with obedience and to do what he commands us so that we can serve him with our lives. That's what it means to orient our hope, set our hope fully on the grace that will be shown to us in Jesus. And so if that's the case, the first command is set your hope. And if you do that, it leads to the second command that Peter has for us today. Look at verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so so this is one of those phrases, like if you just read these verses out of context, this sounds like the epitome of legalism, right? We're talking about be holy. And he's even quoting Leviticus there. and says, be holy as I am holy. He talks about living with fear towards God. It's these these commands to, to be holy. And this feels like it's this crushing weight that says, you better shape up. You better behave, and if you don't, you're not living out these verses, and you better uh, have the kind of fear of worried about God smacking you down. So, So there's two ways that we typically respond to these verses. One is to be like, this is so weighty and impossible. It's antiquated. I'm not gonna worry about this. My God is just a big, cuddly teddy bear. I don't need to worry about holiness or how I behave. I'm just gonna do whatever I want. The other way people typically respond to this is uh, this idea of like, if I try hard enough, I can do this. 
Yeah, I was at a youth camp one time in high school where the, the guy preaching said, God would not give you a command unless you had the ability to obey it. So if you leave here and sin ever again, it's because you're not doing what you should be doing in God's sight. And, and, and that, like, in the, the youth moment, that sounds exciting. You're like, all right, let's go do it. And then you leave camp and you're like, I am a miserable failure. I like guess this crushing weight to realize, like, I will never live with the kind of holiness that I think God's calling us to here. So, so what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? Remember, command one was set your hope on the grace to be revealed. Command two is be holy as God is holy. And so what, we, what, what Peter means by holiness is thinking and behavior that is aligned with God's revealed character. Okay, holiness is thinking and behavior that is aligned with God's revealed character. And so, so if you think about it, like God is completely different than us. He is completely other. He is holy and pure and magnificent and glorious and eternal and all these things that in our human finiteness, we are not. And so when, when, when God says, I have made you holy, I have set you apart, he's saying that we need to embody the same characteristics that God has demonstrated for us. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Kevin DeYoung, and he defines holiness as, as a simple definition of holiness is anything you can thank God for. So any behavior that you're doing and you can thank God for, that's walking in holiness. Any thought you have that you can thank God for, that's thinking in holiness. Anything that you can thank God for is holiness. When you think about the commands, because this is behavior-oriented, he says, be holy in all of your conduct. What our our job is is to focus on the character of God and have that be the fuel for our obedience. Remember, it's not our obedience that leads to salvation. It's our salvation that leads us to obey. And, And ultimately, obeying God is the best thing for us. Right? In 1 John 5, the Apostle John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And notice this, this doesn't say this is the love for God. You love God by keeping his commandments. He says this is the love of God. God has shown his love for you in showing us how to obey him. And when we obey him, that is not a burdensome thing that we're crushed under. It's actually freeing and life-giving. It, it's, it's our lives operating according to the user manual that the creator of the universe gave us. And so the way we do this, he says, as obedient children. And, this, and he uses the phrase of God as father here in a few verses as well. And this idea of God as our father, we are his sons and his daughters. What he's saying is obedience flows from our identity and our new birth. He's already mentioned several times in 1 Peter that we've been born again to this living hope. We, we, it's not just that we've been adopted, taken as an orphan, and then made a part of his family. We've actually been regenerated. We've been given an entire new life that has come about spiritually because we have put our faith in him. And so because of that, we obey our dad. Our fuel for obedience is that we want to be just like our Heavenly Father. We want to be just like Dad. Uh, That's something natural in children. Like if you have a healthy relationship with your father, your earthly father, you want to be like him. I I remember, uh, this is a while ago, the boys were going to go get haircuts. And they were talking to their, uh, Kelly was like, okay, what kind of haircut do you guys want? And all of their answers was, I want a haircut just like Dad. You know, it comes down in the front and kind of goes back on the sides. (laughs) She's like... But you mean you want a receding hairline? I don't think that's not dad's haircut. That's just how his genetics are working out. And they'll come soon enough, boys. Don't worry about that anyway. But the thinking of it is like that's something that all kids have that drive. Like I I was so disappointed that I was left-handed as a kid because my dad was right-handed and my brother was right-handed and he was more like my dad than I was, right? That kind of drive of saying, I want to be just like dad. When Peter is saying that is natural, as obedient children, 
Live in holiness in all your conduct. Like, live out your identity as God's sons and daughters. And when you do that, you won't be conformed to the patterns of this world. In verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so, so the conformed means to have the pattern of your life shaped by your surroundings. And, and I love the way that Peter is honest with our struggles. Like he, he points out that the, our former life still has a pull on us. He has to remind us that, that your old self, that who you were before Jesus, when you were living for yourself instead of living for him, that sin, that patterns that you have in your heart, those still have a tug on our souls. We are still tempted to fall back into that old behavior. And he's reminding us, don't be conformed to your exile, right? Like you're living in a foreign land among people who are enemies of God. Don't be conformed to that culture. Be conformed to your heavenly father. Act more like dad in all of your conduct. And so that's this trajectory towards are we living in holiness or not? And the way that we do this, it says, is by uh, living with fear. Uh, verse uh, 17, it says, uh, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. And, and this idea of being motivated by fear is not something that we talk about a lot in the church, especially in the American church. This idea of like, what does it mean to have fear be a part of our motivation? Because again, it sounds so backwards. Like I thought, I thought God was love. Why would I be afraid of him if he is loving to me? And, and, and the idea here is, is not um, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he had a distinction that's helpful. He said there's, there's two kinds of fear. There's, there's servile fear, where like you are a servant and you're worried that your master is going to smack you around. And then there's filial feel, uh, fear, which is like love for your father. And so, and so a healthy relationship of God as our father and God as our judge says we approach him with awe and reverence and respect, recognizing that he is holy. Because ultimately, those two attributes of God are the most important attributes that we read about in Scripture. God is love, and God is holy, and in the person of our Savior, in Jesus, those things are not a contradiction. Okay, in his holiness, we have awe and respect and reverence for who he is. And when we approach God with fear, like, like in the book of Acts, it mentions several times that the church was full of fear, and it grew. There's something about our fear of the Lord, a healthy respect and a reverence for who God is that leads to people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. I don't know if you've seen the news or been following what's happening in Asbury University. I think it's a school in Kentucky. But from all accounts, it sounds like there's a revival taking place on this college campus. Like lots of people coming to faith in Jesus. And the response, anytime there is a true revival where the Holy Spirit moves and draws people to himself, there is always, it's always preceded by a time of confession in a time of repentance. And there's always this holy reverence towards the person of God and who he is that, that we're seeing in Asbury, but we're seeing it anywhere that people come to God. You can't come to God aware of your sin and not have a holy reverential fear that says you know you need a savior. And so Peter is telling us to conduct ourselves with that kind of fear. So, so it kind of reveals this tension, right? So the first 12 verses has been all about Jesus saved you and you didn't do anything with that. So now he's saying, but, but uh, there's work to be done now. And it kind of feels like it's this contradiction. But ultimately, those two truths have to go together. And we see that it's something that's the case everywhere you look in the Bible. So, for example, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That same concept of fear, a, a, a reverence and awe of God. For it is God who works in you. 
The reason we work on our own sanctification and our holiness and pursuing Jesus is because God is already at work in us. And, and this is where we need to remember, it's not our salvation, or it's not our obedience that produces salvation. It's our salvation that produces obedience. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not the reverse. And that's where Paul, uh, Peter goes next with uh, verse 18 and following. He says, knowing that, so he tells us to be holy. Why should we be holy? Because we know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And here's what I love about First Peter. He spends 12 verses saying, God saved you. You had nothing to do with it. He gives us two little commands, and he's like, but we got to go back to the fact that God saved you, and you had nothing to do with it. This whole book is all about the grace that has been extended to us in God. So even after telling us this command to be holy, the reason we should be holy is because God did all of this stuff for us, because we have been ransomed from our former way of life by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this, this word ransom is so important. It's actually a very unique and specific word in the ancient world, and it only dealt with slaves. And so if you were a slave in the ancient world and you saved up enough money to buy your freedom, you wouldn't just give it to your owner, your master. You would take that money, you would go present it in the temple of a deity, and then the priest would take their cut from that money and they would give the rest to your owner and you would have ransomed yourself. You would have bought your freedom. And the understanding was you are now free with respect to society, but you are a slave with respect to the deity. Because your freedom was purchased through the temple, you were now a slave to that deity the rest of your life. And, and, and what Peter is doing here is he's saying that that ransom is what Jesus did for us. Okay, we have been ransomed from our former way of life. In the place of a temple, though, it was Jesus' body himself that was sacrificed for us. Right? And, and this is basic economics. Think, think about the question, how much do you matter to God? How much are you worth to God? With basic economics, all you have to do is say, you are worth whatever someone is willing to pay for you. And Peter's saying, you weren't ransomed with uh, gold or silver. You were ransomed with the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God himself. If you're willing to give someone a gold ring, that is a sign of love that you have for them. If you're willing to give someone your life, that is a sign of even more, a deeper and more intimate set of love that God has for us. And so when we look at this, we say, the reason we obey is not so that we can be saved. It's because we have been ransomed and saved by Jesus. That is the fuel for our obedience. So let's keep going in verse 22. So that's, those are the first two commands. Set your hope. And when you set your hope on Jesus, you will want to be holy. You will try to obey and to reflect the character of God. And the way that we know we are living in holiness, the way that we know our hope is oriented on Jesus, is that we love one another well. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so with that, he's saying that this idea of since you have been purchased by Jesus, you have been made a new creation, you've been completely reborn by him, love one another with a pure and holy love, an earnest love coming from a pure heart. And even there, he says, since this has happened, 
do this because of the, uh, the grace that God has shown you. Our love for one another is fueled by the grace that Jesus has already shown us. And he says that this love needs to be a brotherly love, a, a brotherly and a sisterly love. What he's pointing out is that we have not been saved in isolation. God did not just save you as an individual and say, now go live in holiness. He's saying he saved us as his people. And it's only together as the people of God that we get to fully demonstrate the character of God because God is love and you cannot love in isolation. You have to love in community. That's why the local church is such an important place. So, so love is having a, a righteous relationship with others that is based on God's character. You're demonstrating God's character in your interactions with one another. That, that's why when we talk about love as a church, the definition we use is that love is desperately wanting what's best for another person for their own sake. It's not I'm trying to use you to get something from you. It's, it's that my heart's passion, my earnest desire is that whatever is best for you would take place in your life, and that's for your own sake, not for my own sake. Or, or take like 1 Corinthians 13, right? The famous love chapter that people read at weddings in different places. Well, if you boil that chapter down, what it's saying love is, is it's you before me, no matter how hard it gets or how long it takes. Okay, that's the kind of love we should have for each other, is it's you before me, no matter how long it takes or how hard it gets. And so Peter's saying that when we love in that way, we are living in holiness, and holiness is a reflection of the character of God. So the reason that love is important, the reason that obedience and holiness is important is because as God's children, our behavior shows the world the character of the God who has saved us. So when we fail to live in holiness, when we fail to love one another, we are giving the world a marred and a, 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 a smudged uh, reflection of who the God is who saved us. So, so, so take, let's take some examples, like the, the sin of racism. Right? That's an easy one to, to identify. It's when you hate someone because they are different than you. Okay, but if we are a people characterized by racism, how does that reflect the character of a God who loved us enough, even though we are different from him and dead in our sin, that he came to die for us? Right? Or, or, or take the sin of greed. All right, if we are consumed by greed and a selfishness of amassing for ourselves, how does that reflect the character of a God who gave of himself entirely and was willing to die for our sin? Or, or how about the sin of anger, when we get so mad at people that we sin against them in our anger? And when we sin in anger, how does that reflect the character of a God who is long-suffering and patient and endures with us even in our sin? Or, or, or the sin of gossip, when we, we talk behind people's back in a way of, of making ourselves feel better, how does that reflect the character of a God who loves in us enough to take our sin upon himself instead of making himself look good? He actually becomes sin in our place. Or the sin of lust, right? Lust is, is using someone else for your own gratification. How does that reflect the character of a God who is willing to give of himself for our sake? No matter what sin it is that we're struggling with or whatever the failure is, what they ultimately reflect is a failure to show the world the goodness and the beauty of who God is. When we set our hope on God, we will live in holiness, and that holiness is always demonstrated by a type of love that goes towards our neighbors. And so when you, when you talk about loving one another, when you talk about living in holiness, these challenges feel insurmountable. Right? We, we all have these besetting sins that cling to our hearts that it feels like I've been trying so hard to conquer this and I keep falling into the same sin over and over again. It, when will this ever get better? This feels like this is impossible. This is insurmountable and we have no hope. That's what it feels like when we're trapped in our struggles. But listen to how Peter wraps up this section. He says, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so what Peter's doing there, he's quoting this famous prophecy from Isaiah, written 600 years ago. And now here we are reading it 2,000 years after that. So there's like 2,600 years in play in this quote that we're reading today. And so when we go back to our struggles and we say, this feels like this will never end, we need to orient our hearts and remember that we're talking about our relationships in light of a God who is eternal, whose word abides forever, his loving word abides forever. That's the good news, the gospel that has been preached to us. So so here's an example. When Peter is writing this letter in the first century, he's writing it to this this ragtag group of first century Christians who are looked down on by society. They're about to be persecuted and martyred because they have no power or no ability to speak up for themselves. And he's telling them, you can live with this hope for the future. But in the face of the Roman Empire, if you are a first century Christian, it feels like what is against you is so much more powerful than what you could ever imagine. Right? The Roman Empire seems insurmountable, just like this discussion of holiness for us sometimes feels insurmountable. But, but here we are now 2,000 years later, and if you want to experience the Roman Empire, if you want to encounter the Roman Empire, how do you do that? You buy a plane ticket, and you go pay a tour guide to show you the ruins of this once great empire that is now living in shambles that doesn't exist anymore. At the same time, the living and abiding holy word of God, if you want to encounter the good news that Peter's talking about here, how do you encounter that good news? Where can you? You can go to any of one 16 million churches that are gathering on a Sunday morning like today, singing his praises. You can go to any of two billion followers of Christ whose lives have been changed by the good news of Jesus. The, the word of God, the gospel that we have believed in is the thing that remains forever. Things like Rome, things like greed, those are but blips in the radar of the eternal holiness and goodness of God. And so when we talk about following Jesus and living in the holiness that he's called us to, we are not talking about our own effort. It is not our obedience that leads to salvation. It's our salvation that leads us to obey. And so Paul says this very similarly in Ephesians 5. It's a, it's a famous passage about uh, husbands and wives. But listen to this word, and let's talk about it here as we close. It says, husbands, love your wives. And then here's the example of the illustration. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify, that he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So just like Peter talks about the word being the thing that does the work of God, Paul is saying the same thing. We've been washed and made clean by the word of God, by, by Jesus' good news for us, by his death and resurrection. That is the only place that our holiness comes from. Okay, so, so in this passage, every word it says her is talking about us as the church of Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. And all of our holiness, all of our spotless living, all of our righteousness, all of our cleanness, all of that has nothing to do with our effort. That has everything to do with the work of Jesus. Because he is the one who has washed us and made us clean. And so, so when we set our hope on Jesus and his work, that's the thing that allows us to live with holiness and obedience today as we look forward to the future when he will one day return. And all of these metaphors won't just be a picture of the future that we're waiting for. It will actually be our present experience because we will be with Jesus and be fully washed clean as he is working in us right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and just the fact that uh, these verses are so powerful and a reminder of that uh, our obedience doesn't make us any more acceptable in your sight, but we are acceptable in your sight because of what Jesus has done. 
And if that's the case, Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us and stir up this desire to live in holiness and obedience, not to earn your love, but because we are so aware of your constant and present love in our lives. I pray that as we go to our discussion tables, that this would be a time of uh, edifying for one another, that we would point us uh, each towards the goodness that we have seen in your son, and we would leave here encouraged. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to turn to our discussion tables now. This is your first time here. The the reason we sit at tables is because we want to study God's Word. We want to make sure that we leave having actually processed what God is showing us. And so we have some questions to get us started. Uh, The first one is, what are the things that narrow your gaze or focus? Remember that idea of like sober-mindedness is being aware of what's going on around you, not having a narrow gaze. So what are the things that narrow your gaze? What desires or hopes cloud your mind from seeing Jesus And how does hope in the gospel broaden your gaze? What does it mean for Jesus to be better? Another question is, God's kindness leads to repentance, not the reverse. And our salvation fuels our obedience, not the reverse. Why are we so tempted to switch the order of those statements? What is it about my heart that makes me want to think the more I obey, the kinder God will be to me instead of the other way around? And then lastly, uh, finish this sentence. In my life, greater holiness looks like this. Right, like what would living in greater holiness and obedience to what Peter is telling us look like? And the hint is that it's Jesus, right? Like Christ-likeness and humility and holiness go together with that. So we'll do this for about 10 minutes, and then we'll end in a time of worship. All right. Well, I hope your discussions went well. Um, Rereading those questions, that first question, that's a doozy. I don't know who wrote that, but he should have uh, done more editing and making that clear. But if you are able to uh, process that, I think that is an important thing. So one of the things we'd like to always encourage you is like if, you know, taking a picture of the questions, or I think they're on the bulletin, but somehow uh, processing these throughout the week with your roommate or your spouse or your DC, something like that, often can be helpful to keep working with what God is doing in your heart. So, so what we're going to do now is the way we end every service is we respond in worship. So the idea is when you encounter Jesus through his word that our hearts long to respond. Like we see his greatness and we should respond. So we can respond through prayer. I'll, I'll be in that back corner. If you have anything you would like prayer for, I would love to pray for you. Uh, there's also like at your table, if someone there wants to pray for you, that would be a good thing as well. Uh, we respond through giving. Uh, so if Jesus gave us everything and new life in Christ through his death, when we give of our tithes and our offerings, that's an act of worship. So we have the, the offering box in the back corner there. Uh, we respond through singing. So uh, when you love someone, you sing their praises, right? That's, that's what we're going to do here in a little bit with two closing songs. And then we respond through communion. And so communion is this weekly time where we come to the table. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus and asked him to be their savior, we welcome you to the table. We serve open communion here. Uh, but this idea of, of um, coming to the table and having a healthy fear of God is an important thing I think that we can end with this morning. There, there's, this, there's this idea of like, how can I know that God is holy? How can I have fear for him? And how can I approach him? Those things seem to be contradictory. Uh, there's this famous scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where they're learning about Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in those books. And they ask this question, uh, wait, he's a lion. Uh, is he safe? And the, the response is safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And I think that's the thing we want to lean into this morning when we come to the table is this idea of like a healthy fear and reverence of awe in God. There is nothing safe or tameable or manageable about that, but there is the goodness of God. And, and so how, if, if God is good and if he's not safe, how can we approach him? And there's this amazing verse in Hebrews where it talks about 
Uh, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And because he went to the cross, uh, we can have uh, access to the throne of grace. We can approach boldly with confidence to the throne of grace. And that's because of the way that Jesus died for our sins in our place. Right? Because he took the, like, God is wrathful towards sin. God righteously judges sin. But the beauty of the cross is that on that cross, in that moment, the righteous wrath of God fell on Jesus, his son. Jesus fully absorbed the cup of God's wrath. And because of that, when we come to the table, even though in our sin and in our flesh, we could never uh, uh, approach him on our own, because Jesus has washed us through his word, has made us clean, that's the reason we can have confidence before him. Uh, There's this really impactful scene in the Gospel of Luke where uh, Peter encounters Jesus for the first time, right? And and Jesus does this amazing miracle, and there's this huge catch of fish, so much so that their boats are swamped and sinking. And uh, so Peter just made a ton of money in one day because Jesus did this miracle. And uh, R.C. Sproul points out that most of us, if Jesus did a miracle and our boats were overwhelmed with fish, we'd be like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you come back here and make sure that we do this again and I make even more money and get more money? Uh, But that's not what Peter's response is. Peter's response when he sees Jesus on the shore after this miracle, because he recognizes that Jesus is God in the flesh, he is completely holy and different. Peter's response, the same Peter who wrote 1 Peter, says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He falls on his face. He confesses his sin. He knows that in his own flesh, he does not deserve to be in the presence of God. But, but Jesus calls him to himself. He picks him up. He sends him into ministry. And three years later, would die on the cross for Peter's sin so that Peter could be washed clean. And so when we come to the table every single week, what it is is this weekly reminder that left to ourselves, we could never be holy enough to earn God's love. Our obedience could never produce salvation. But because Jesus loved us, we don't have to say, depart from me, I'm sinful. We say, thank you for making me clean. I am no longer sinful. I can come to you with faith. And that's what happens every week at the table. So I'm going to say a word of prayer. Uh, and if you're able, if you can go ahead and join me in standing, we will uh, end our time in worship. And, and as you come to the table, as you gab the elements, and remember, Jesus' body broken for you, Jesus' blood shed for you. Remember that that is the reason you can approach with, with, with holy fear, but with the confidence knowing that you're forgiven. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you for the grace that you have shown us on the cross through Jesus absorbing the wrath that we deserved. Lord, we know that we need a, a healthy reverential and awe and fear of you, but we're thankful that that fear does not lead to our demise because Jesus already died in our place. God, may we come to the table with confidence and boldness, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we have been washed clean, and we are spotless and able to obey you because of your work within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.